0: All right, we left off here in John chapter 10 with Jesus contrasting himself, the good shepherd, uh, in contrast to the false shepherds of his day. And this was Jesus's proclamation when he said that uh, I'm the door of the sheep and I'm the good shepherd. Now, when he says those two things here in John chapter 10, that's two of four I am statements that Jesus makes uh, in uh, John's gospel two of four that we've covered so far he says uh, i am the bread of life in john chapter six he says i'm the light of the world in john chapter eight and here in uh, chapter 10 he says i'm the door of the sheep and he says i'm the good shepherd today also in john chapter 10 he's going to make his most dramatic i am statement yet he's going to declare i am the son of of God. And we are going to see that that has some pro- profound implications for us today. We're going to deal with some big things today and we're going to answer uh, several questions that are very pertinent to our, to our life. One of the questions we're going to answer today is, does God choose us or do we choose God? Uh, how, uh, is it possible for you to lose your salvation? We're going to look at that today. We're going to look at uh, hearing God's voice <clears throat> and ask, answering the question, how do we actually know we've heard from God? How do we discern that it's, that it's God's word that we're hearing and, and not uh, something that we're calling God's word? Uh, so just a few light subjects that we're going to touch on uh, today. Let's pick it up in verse 22. It says, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Um, we left off in verse 21 with Jesus having this confrontation with the religious leaders. He healed the blind man uh, and he gets called on the carpet and they wanna know, hey, why? What are, you, what are you doing? You're healing on the Sabbath and you're wicked and evil and all of that. And that's where he talked about being the door of the sheep and the good shepherd. Uh, this actually between verse 21 and 22, This fast forwards, this is about two and a half, three month jump in time, jump ahead in time. And so uh, it's the Feast of Dedication. It's winter, he's walking in the temple on Solomon's porch. Verse 24, then the Jews surrounded him and they said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered him and he said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. So it's it's two and a half, three months later from his first conversation with them about uh, being the good shepherd. The occasion now is the Feast of Dedication, and a little history is needed, a little background information. What's the Feast of Dedication? What's it all about? Um, It was a celebration that occurred in 164 BC, and the celebration was they were celebrating the fact that they had had retaken and cleansed and dedicated uh, the temple after three years of desecration by a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a bad dude. He was the king of Syria. Um, and uh, he attacked Jerusalem, he overtook the temple, he set it up as a place of prostitution, Um, he started sacrificing pigs on the altar to the Greek god Zeus, and he outlawed the possession of the Old Testament scriptures, and he outlawed the practice of the Old Testament scriptures. So if you were caught in possession of, of the Old Testament scriptures, the penalty was they'd kill you. If you were caught practicing the Old Testament scriptures, uh, for instance, if the you know uh, if, if you decided that you were going to circumcise your children, as the Old Testament uh, prescribed, uh, then what they would do if they found a child who'd been circumcised, they would crucify the mother and they would hang the baby around the mother's neck. This guy was a prince among men, he was a horrible man <laughs> um, on top of that, he killed in, in his reign, he killed about eighty thousand. Jews. He put another 80,000 Jews into slavery, um, and uh, interestingly, uh, as we talk about the Antichrist in the end times, Antiochus Epiphanes serves as a type of Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist prof- uh, prophesied in, in the end times, but he's certainly a type that we can look to and say, wow, it's, this is a horrible man. Well, what happened was in 164 BC, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabees and his brother Simeon led a revolt. And in this revolt, they retook the temple um, and... They cleansed it and then they, uh, they reinstituted instituted uh, all of the ceremonial practices. One of the practices that they reinstituted instituted was uh, they relit the menorah, the candelabra that, that is in the temple and uh, lots of significance in, in the menorah and so on. Uh, the, the seven, uh, seven uh, candle uh, sticks that are on the menorah and the, the outside six, uh, can represent the six days of creation. The center one represents God and the day of rest. Um, the uh, you, just a lot of sim- symbolism there. And um, as as the story goes, as the, the um, you know as, as uh, the commemoration of history goes, uh, the Jews uh, practice today the Feast of Dedication. They call it Hanukkah. And uh, this was, there was an occasion during this time where uh, they found this sacramental oil. The oil had to be prepared by the priests. It took, it took a week to do, to, to prepare this olive oil sac- sacramentally and, and all. And uh, they, they only had they f- in their possession enough oil for the candelabra to be lit for one day, and it miraculously lasted a week. And so that's a prominent part of, uh, the, of Hanukkah today. But the, the, the big idea is we look at the, occasion, that it's the feast of dedication. The the overarching theme of the feast of dedication is an important backdrop for our story today because um, basically it was to commemorate the fact that they were oppressed and they were prevented from worshiping God, um, but through God's miraculous provision, they're now free to worship God. Now, the irony in this is that today, right now, although they're free to worship God and they're celebrating the fact that they're free to worship God, they don't realize that God himself has come to the temple. Jesus Christ shows up, he's God, and they're all celebrating their freedom to worship, but they miss the God of the temple, right? So what is this thing, man? What's going on is they're focusing on their past victories maybe or the past victories of others. They're focusing on their man-made traditions. They're focusing on their rules and their institutions. And so they surround Jesus and they say, hey, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now understand, they're not asking Jesus, hey, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly so that they can worship him. They have no intention of worshiping him. You'll recall in the last chapter when he healed the blind guy, they've already made up their mind. They told the blind guy, give God the glory, you know, just call, him, call this guy a sinner, right? You can glorify by God by rejecting Jesus like we do, and you can call him a sinner. So they've already made up their mind. Uh, they just want Jesus to say that he is the Christ plainly so that they can kill him. So again, the overarching idea is you got people celebrating their freedom to worship God, and they're simultaneously rejecting God. We hit the pause button right there because we've got application right up front here in our story. And the application is this, that the freedom to worship God is not the same as actually worshiping God. The freedom to worship God is not the same as actually worshiping God. You see, they they had their freedom secured by the work of others. That's a wonderful thing. That's a beautiful thing. But they then had the responsibility to actually worship God themselves. That is the key. And as Americans, we need to understand the issue isn't that we have freedom to worship. The issue is, do you worship? The issue is, do you worship? And if you do worship, then what do you worship? It's been said, everybody worships something or someone. And we got to answer the question, am I using my freedom to worship? And if so, who? Am I worshiping? Am I focusing on actually knowing and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord in the truth of his word? Or am I really, practically speaking, acting more like the Pharisees, focusing on what God did in the past through others, but I'm missing him in the present, right? So the Pharisees, they say with the intent to kill Jesus in verse 24, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And so Jesus answers now, verse 25, he says, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. So Jesus says, look, I've told you already, and I've shown you already. It's so important that we get this. We gotta hear what Jesus says. Look, I told you, and I've shown you, right? Jesus is emphasizing his word, and he's emphasizing his works. And the idea is this, that for us to truly know God and to follow God, it comes only by way of his word and of his works. The Bible says this, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God because anybody who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him, right? So the question is, how do we gain that faith? Well, a couple of verses here speak to that. Romans ten seventeen tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As well, the psalmist declared, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him? So you take these together and you say, you know, what, how do we gain faith? And well, we see that it's a combination of, hey, we gotta listen to God we got to listen to his words. We have to believe in his words. We have to obey, put obediently in practice feet on the words that he declares to us. And as well, we then have to watch the results. We We need to watch how God works. I had a couple come to me years ago for marriage counseling. Their marriage was a train wreck and things were headed for divorce. It was not pretty sight. And so they came to see me and the guy made it clear up front. The wife knew the Lord. She was saved. Husband, wanted nothing to do with it, right, and, and they were dis- you know, this was sort of, I, I, I had the discernment, this is, this is kind of him appeasing her, but for the most part, uh, they'd already given up, and the guy made it clear to me, he just, he walked in, and he just said, look, let's get this straight, I don't believe in all this Jesus stuff, and so I had a conversation with a guy, and I just said, look, okay, uh, l- let's, let's make a deal, You happen to be in luck because the Bible teaches that God created marriage, and the Bible actually has a lot of things to say about marriage. And it's some very practical, specific things that it says about marriage. Now, I understand you don't believe, but humor me. Let's do this. I'll tell you what the Bible says, and you do it. Just just take a, a couple of weeks. I'll tell you what it says, and then you go and you do it. And along the way, if, if, you, if you will just take the, the next you know, couple of weeks, two or three weeks, and do that, and simultaneously, if you'll pray this. Now, I understand you don't believe, and that, that's fine. But if you'll do it, and if you'll say to God, basically, look, I don't believe all this stuff, but if you're real, show me. And, and, and do so with an open mind. I said to him, are you willing to do that? Can can you give a couple of weeks, and just humor me, hear what it says, do what it says, and ask God, hey, show me how you work in in, and through this. If you're real, reveal yourself to me. Are you willing to do that? Well, yeah, he, he was. Now, that situation ended up working out beautifully, right? Not only was their marriage miraculously saved, but he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He took his words, he obeyed his words, and he honestly said, hey, if you're real, show me, you know, in this. And, and, and God did, and he did, and, and, and it was just a beautiful picture. You know, here we got a guy whose marriage gets saved, he comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and, and it was beautiful. But here's the thing, it doesn't always work that way. Right, there, 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 there's no, there, it, just, it just doesn't always happen that way. And we see that here, just because somebody hears Jesus's words and they see his work, it's not a guarantee that they're going to believe. A case in point, you look at verse 26, Jesus says to these Pharisees, he says, you don't believe. Certainly, they had, they had heard God's word Right? They'd been entrusted with God's word. They prided themselves in memorizing God's word. They had, they had heard God's word, and there is, it is unquestionable that they had seen Jesus' work. I mean, the, the story leading into this, just a couple of months in their rearview mirror, is that Jesus had healed a blind man. Never happened before, and they, and they couldn't deny it. The evidence was crystal clear. So they'd heard his works or heard his words, they'd seen his works, but they didn't believe. Why didn't they believe? Well, Jesus says in verse 26, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Now, theologically speaking, what Jesus does there in verse 26 is he pulls the pin on a hand grenade and just throws it out amongst them, right? Theologically speaking, this is a hand grenade and it's been debated for ages. And that theological hand grenade centers around this question. How do we become God's sheep And does God choose us or do we choose God? In other words, what is the balance between, I'm going to give you a a big word here. It's It's a matter of doctrine and it's called divine election. And then there is another doctrine sitting right beside it. And that's called human responsibility, right? Or the doctrine of free will. So you've got the doctrine of divine election and you have the doctrine of free will, right? So what is the balance between these two? And by the way, this has been debated for thousands of years and I'm just gonna take five minutes and clear it up, okay? So, (laughs) divine election is the idea that God chooses us, right? Uh, It's also known as the doctrine of predestination. Um, There are those that call themselves Calvinists today or those that hold to, you know, another word you might hear, reformed theology. And this is really uh, the cornerstone of that. Um, that they hold to the belief that salvation is entirely based on God's choice and God's choice alone. That man is, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things that you you and, and me as sinners are absolutely, completely and totally unable to choose God because we are wicked and sinners and that it's entirely based on God's divine election to choose us right? And there's several scriptures that the doctrine of predestination is uh, predicated on. Uh, Ephesians four or Ephesians 1 verses uh, 4 and 5 says, even before God made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ, chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Another scripture that the doctrine of predestination is based upon is uh, John 15, 16, where Jesus himself said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the idea of human responsibility, also known as the doctrine of free will. And the idea basically here is that we choose God. And as well, the doctrine of free will is based on scriptures that, that are in your Bible uh, again as well. John 6, 29, uh, Jesus was asked, you know, hey, uh, what are the works that we can do uh, to know God? And he said, this is the only work that God wants from you. Believe in the one that he sent. Paul, speaking to the Romans, Romans ten three, he said this, he said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, shall be, say, shall be saved. Whoever, anybody, everyone, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Um, Acts chapter 16, uh, you, you have uh, you know, a guy that comes to the disciples and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And how did they answer him? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So you've got these two doctrines that are sitting side by side. Both of them come from Scripture, the doctrine of free will and the doctrine of predestination, right? And so which one of them is correct? And the answer is yes. They're both correct, right? It's not either or, it's both and. Because scripturally both are correct, that God chooses us and we choose God. Pastor Chuck Smith said this. He said, on the outside of the salvation door are the words, whosoever will, let him come. Revelation twenty-two, seventeen. 17. He then says, on the inside of the salvation door are the words chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4. So from a human standpoint, we become Jesus's sheep by believing, but from a divine standpoint, we believe because we are his sheep. It's both and. And there's a mystery in how all of this works, but the scriptures are clear that God works faith in us, and then he also enables us to freely choose him. Now, understand, both sides are God working. He's working on, on the divine election side, but he's also working on the free will side to be able to give us sight, to be able to bring us to a place where, you know, essentially he says, I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. choose life, right? But, but you still have a free choice in that, in that process. And you go, man, it's just also confusing, and it is. I like what Romans eleven thirty three through 36 says. It kind of sums this up. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I like what Greg Glory says. He says, look, if God was small enough for you to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for your problems, right? And so there are some things about God where we just go, I don't know. And this is one of them. Bible teaches both, and both are true. And we can't reconcile how possibly both could be true, but the Bible teaches that both are true. God chooses us, and we choose God. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, look, you don't believe, because you're not my sheep. But in contrast, notice what he says in verses 27 through 29. He says, my sheep hear my voice. Now he's going back to where he left off a couple of months previous, two or three months previous with these guys. When he talked about the good shepherd and the bad shepherds. And he talked about, you know, his sheep, right? And he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Last week Jesus contrasted the good shepherd with false shepherds. And Jesus said that he as a good shepherd has a loving relationship with his sheep, right? Because he dies for them. Jesus says he has a living relationship with his sheep because he cares for them. And here now in these verses we've just read, what we see is that Jesus has a lasting relationship with his sheep. There's two points I want to focus in on that. He says, first of all, in verse 27, that as his sheep, he speaks to us, right? He says, my sheep hear my voice. The idea of that word here is that it's active and it's ongoing. We'll come right back to that. Hold that thought. I want you to notice the second thing about this lasting relationship with Jesus. It also means that as his sheep, and he emphasizes this, that he gives us life forever. That he protects us forever. He says in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is what's known as the doctrine of eternal security. The doctrine of eternal security. Understand when you become a child of God, the Bible says it is forever. We sang today, no, no, no power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck me from his hand. Ephesians chapter four or verse 30 tells us that believers are sealed for the day of redemption. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter three, verses 15 and 16, among other things, when he talked about, uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? That whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life, right? One of the strongest scriptures for this doctrine of eternal security is in Romans chapter eight. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's what that means. That means you can't lose your salvation. People worry about this. I had someone come up to me after the first service today. Thank you so much for teaching on the doctrine of eternal security. Why? Because people worry about this all the time. I've had people come up to me, they're like, oh, I, I am freaked out that I might have committed the unpardonable sin. Remember Jesus, he said, you know, you can be forgiven of anything, but there's one thing you can't be forgiven of, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You blaspheme against God, then, then you can't be saved of that. And I have people come up to me and they're like, I'm freaked out that I might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes they think I took the Lord's name in vain. I blasphemed against God by doing that or, or whatever the case may be. And, and so people are worried. They say, that, you know, these are people who have, who have prayed to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and they have a level desire to walk with the Lord, but they come up to me, hey, I'm worried that I might have lost my salvation. I'm like, no, you didn't. Because if you had lost your salvation, you, could, you wouldn't be able to care less, right? The, you, you would, it would just be like, I couldn't care less about that. Why? Because blaspheming God, blaspheming the Holy Spirit means you reject God, right? But listen, as a child of God, if you go, hey, can I lose my salvation? Look, that's the wrong question. The question is, can God lose you? And the answer is no. I got a buddy, his name's Dave, and and we started our our first church Reliance, or uh, Revival Christian Fellowship together, and he now pastors a church in Paris, uh, Calvary Chapel, Paris. And, oh no, I take it back, uh, Calvary Chapel, Nuevo, and, um, and he, man, he's, he took his oldest daughter, Danielle, miracle child, by the way, child of promise. He, he and his wife, they couldn't conceive for years. And uh, finally, miraculously, they were able to conceive their oldest daughter, they subsequently had a couple more kids and all, but the, he took his oldest daughter and he took her up to, um, to Half Dome in Yosemite. And uh, they climbed half dome, not the face of it, you know, with repelling and all that. But you can climb up the backside of half, any of you ever done this? Climb up the backside, of a couple of you. So you guys know, those of you that raise your hand, you know, it's no joke, right? It might not be climbing up the face, but if you make one wrong move, you can literally fall to your death doing this. In fact, people do it every year, they fall to their death. So he climbs up this this, this, uh, rock with his daughter, and he puts her in front of him as they're ascending the ladder and holding onto the cable, but you know what he did? He tied a rope to her, and he said, look, you know, I'm right here. I'm going to catch you if you fall, and uh, if you fall, you know what? I'm I'm tethered to you, And, and the idea here is that when we think about the idea of eternal security, we are tethered. To the Lord, When God died on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins in your place, he died for your sins past, he died for your sins present, he died for your sins future. And listen, you don't then have to work to attain a right relationship with God, you work from your right relationship with God. If you fall, you are tethered to God. He will not let you fall fall from his grasp right the bible says "Oh, a righteous man falls seven times he gets back up again the lord jesus will keep you and so you don't work for a relationship with god you work from your relationship with god now this brings up <coughs> all kinds of questions because people will say well gosh i know somebody who professed faith they then fell away from faith they denied the lord up until the day that they died And it's always a dangerous place when we put ourselves in the seat of God and we decide who lives and who dies and and who has eternal life and who doesn't. Jesus did say that you will know them by their fruits, right? We can can, uh, be able to discern from the fruit of a person's life whether they know the Lord or not. But it is troubling when we say, well, gosh, you know, uh, what do I do with eternal security when I knew somebody? And, you know, I can think of people in my past who, you know, I worshiped the Lord with, I prayed with. And they ended up denying the Lord and walking away from the Lord. And, and how is all that going to work out? And the, the answer is, we really don't know. And, and it opens up all kinds of theological questions like, okay, you can't, you know, you can't lose your salvation, but can you, can you g- willingly give up your salvation? Can you reject the Lord and say, I chose to walk with the Lord, but now I choose to reject God? It, it, you know, here's the thing. Um, it's complicated. But the, but the issue is, this is, by the way, why Peter said in Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1 that we have to be diligent to make our calling and our election sure, right? There is that needfulness. But I don't want to leave you clear on the doctrine of eternal security. If you have invited Christ to be your Lord and your Savior, are you going to be, then live the rest of your life without sinning? No right? Because as long as you live in your body, you're going to identify with the apostle Paul who said, that that I want to do, I don't do. That that I don't want to do, that's what I do. What a wretched man I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? His answer Jesus. That's the answer of most questions in church, right? That's the answer. Jesus is going to save me. So, so it doesn't mean when you come to Christ that you're magically never going to sin again, but it does mean that God's going to make you a new creation and he's going to change you day by day, but he's never going to leave you or forsake you. That's the idea. That's the idea. We have to make our calling and our election sure to be in the faith. Going back to Jesus' promise that his sheep hear his voice. Let's dial into that for a minute. I told you that the idea of that word here is that it's active and that it's ongoing. Uh, it's like my communication with my kids. I've been preaching now for about a half an hour and, uh, and I get messages that, that I've got my, my iPads hooked up to, to the internet. And so, you know, my kids, we got a family group text and they're talking back and forth to each other. You know, um, and, and so just, you know, conversation's active, it's ongoing. We call each other, we FaceTime each other, we visit each other, talk face to face, all of these things. Active, it's ongoing. And God's like that too with his kids. He says, My sheep hear, active, ongoing, hear my voice. And so the idea is that God speaks to his children. He speaks to you today, he speaks to me today, he speaks to us through prayer. God speaks to us through the biblical counsel of other Christians, right? He speaks to us through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, the third, uh, you know, the third in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God eternally existing in three persons, and God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit, gives us words of wisdom through the Spirit, words of knowledge through the Holy Spirit. He gives us words of truth through the Holy Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Truth right? Leads us into all truth. So God speaks to us in a lot of different ways. The primary way that we hear God's voice is through his word, through, through his written word. Jesus is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the, the full of grace and truth, the only begotten of the Father, right? God speaks to us through his word. And we need to exercise very careful caution when we, and I'll use air quotes here, hear from God. Why? Well, because it is true that God speaks to us in many ways today, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15 give us a warning that Satan also speaks to us. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and it tells us there also that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. That word disguise, it means literally to change in fashion or to change in appearance. Think Little Red Riding Hood, right? Oh, grandma, what big eyes you have? What big teeth? you! Wait a minute. You're not grandma. You're a wolf, right? And this is what Satan does is that he and his servants come to us in disguise. One of the ways that Satan does that we read about in in Genesis chapter 3. God tells, gives instruction to Adam and Eve, and then Satan comes along, and he's like, eh, God didn't really say that. Here's what God said, and then he says, and here's what God meant. He, God, re- he didn't really want the, the best for you. He told you that because he wants to keep you down, man. He he just know he, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want you to become like him. So so you know, God's just trying to hold out on you. He twists and manipulates God's word." And he uses his servants also, they come to us disguised as servants of righteousness. And this can be malicious in intent, or it can even be misguided in intent. We have an example of uh, a misguided Christian in the story of uh, Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Remember, Jesus telling his disciples, he's letting them in, he's sharing his word. Hey, look, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to be crucified. And Peter's like, well, that doesn't jive with what I've got expecting. I'm expecting you as the Messiah that you're going to come and you're going to set up rule and reign, you're going to kick Rome out, and we're going to have this great earthly rule and reign, and what you're saying now, Jesus, through your word, doesn't line up with my expectations, so, you know, no. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me. Satan. Satan, right? And it's a prime example, you got people in your life that they're they're Christian, but sometimes the words that they speak to you are really satanic. It's It's just the counsel of man, it's the counsel of flesh, it's the counsel of what they think is right. And you know what, we as well, we can do this. Sometimes God's word sounds remarkably like your voice. In my voice, right? Where there's this something that happens, and, and, and you know, God's word's very clear on the subject, but, but I'm not. And so I'm like, oh, I heard from God. Let me give you an example of that. I had a gal in counseling years ago. She and her husband headed for divorce, and the husband wanted to reconcile, but she didn't want to. Now, they had no biblical grounds for divorce, and so I called her on it. I'm like, look, you're saying you want to divorce your husband. He wants to work it out, and you don't have any biblical basis for, for divorce. And biblically, you know, God says he hates divorce, and there's nothing, you know, in, in his word that would give you the green light to move ahead with this. And her response to me was, you know what? I have a piece about it because God's, God's really spoken to me, you know? So often I'm the exception to the rule, right? God's spoken to me. I've got a piece about it. You know what? God knows my heart. And I said, God knows that your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? He knows that art, right? What happened? Her voice, she confused for God's voice. Galatians 1.8 says, Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one that we preached to you. See, here's the thing. You have to be very careful. I have to be very careful to make sure who I'm listening to, right? That it could be me that you're listening to. It could be another pastor that you're listening to. It could be your best friend that you're listening to. It could be your own voice that you mistake as the voice of God. Because like I said, keep that in mind. Like some of the things I say up here, uh, I want to emphasize. That's one of them. I mean, you should walk away remembering that God's voice sounds remarkably like your voice sometimes in a bad way. And so we have to be really careful to make sure it lines up with God's word. We read in in Acts chapter 17 about the people of Berea. And it says that the people of Berea were were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica and they listened eagerly to Paul's message, period. Now, If it ended there, that would be very problematic. But thankfully, there's another sentence that describes them. It says, they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Not scratching them where they itched, but they were teaching the truth and they found that in the word of God. Guys, I strongly encourage you today, if you get nothing else out of this message, My sheep hear my voice, make sure you're hearing God's voice and not your own. Make sure you're hearing God's voice and not some misguided counsel from even a well-meaning Christian who really is the tool of Satan to whom Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan. Because you're not mindful of me, you're mindful of the things of men, right? So we need to be very careful about that. That brings us to verse 30. As Jesus drops the bomb that they're looking for him to drop, notice in verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Understand, every day, these same Jews, they they recited what was known as the Shema. Uh, The Shema was a confession of faith, and in their confession of faith, among other things, they recited Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one. That word God in Deuteronomy 6.4 is the Hebrew word Elohim. It is a plural word grammatically, but it's used in the singular. And the idea is that it represents one God eternally existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus here is touching on that when he says, I and my Father are one right? He says, I, and he says, and my father. This is a bold, clear declaration that he is in fact God. These guys recite the Shema. They're, they're uh, acquainted with this word Elohim, one God, eternally existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They should have known, right? By the way, this is known as the doctrine of the Trinity. We've touched now on three doctrines today. Doctrine's important because what you believe influences how you behave. Okay, what you believe influences how you behave. So I pray that when we talk about doctrine, you'll actually take it to heart and and learn it because it's going to influence how you live. I don't have time to unpack the doctrine of the Trinity. We actually have it on our what we believe section in our website, so I'd encourage you. Um, if, uh, if you wanna dig into that, then you, sh- you can go there and get it. But the point here is that when Jesus proclaims that I and the Father are one, there's no mistake in what he's saying. He's saying to these guys, I'm God. See, maybe you've heard the lie that Jesus never professed to be God. And people will, tell, will say that today. Well, Jesus never said he was God. Well, they haven't read their Bibles because he said it. He's saying it here. So he drops this bomb. They're looking for this bomb. And so they're triggered right away. Verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, many good works I've shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man, make yourself, what's the word? God. There's no question what he was saying, and there's no question what they heard. Jesus was saying, yep, I'm God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world that you are blaspheming because I said that I am the Son of God? What? Like, what on earth? This is one of those sections where you're like, I don't get it, man. What are you saying? Jesus here, he's quoting from Psalm 82. And understand the context of Psalm 82. What Psalm 82 is really kind of a courtroom setting where God assembled the judges of the earth and he's brought them together to rebuke them. He's taken them to the woodshed and basically he's telling them, look, <clears throat> you guys who are judges, you're going to be judged too. And in that Psalm, what God does as he's talking to these judges of the earth, he calls them gods, little g Gods, because they sat in power and authority. And Jesus here is making the point that if God himself called human judges gods, of which these men would would fit the description, then why should they stone Jesus for applying that same title to himself? right? Basically, the point here is not to imply that human judges are on the same level as God. The point of Psalm 82 is not to imply that Jesus is a little g God on the same level as all the other human judges. The point is that their reasoning, their stated reasoning for crucifying Jesus is unbiblical. And the greater point is that the theme of Psalm 82 Hey, again, it's God calling judges on the carpet and judging them, right? Because they have ruled wickedly and God was pronouncing that judgment. He's saying basically, look, I gave you my word and I appointed leaders to bring justice and to bring liberation and to bring love to God's people. But rather than doing that, what you guys have done is that you've rebelled against me and then you want the people to serve you like you are God. And so... God concludes Psalm 82, and I'll put the verse on the screen for you. Psalm 82, verse 8. Here's the conclusion of, of, of him calling these guys on the carpet in this courtroom. It says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall, shall inherit... All nations and so the cry of Psalm 82 is this that hey God our political system is corrupt and our spiritual system is corrupt and our legal system is corrupt some things never change right and they're saying look it's a mess down here would you come down and straighten all this out because these religious leaders who are supposed to be serving you they're serving themselves so what happens Jesus comes to fulfill this prophecy But instead of yielding to God's judgment, they judge Jesus. They now pick up stones to judge Jesus. And so Jesus says there in verses 37 through 39, he says, if I do not do the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do, though uh, but But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. But here's the result, verse 39, therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Jesus closes with this plea. He's saying to these guys, look, stop twisting words and stop arguing over words and would you look at the fruit of what I'm actually doing? If you guys would stop making up your mind and twisting the words that I'm speaking, and if you would actually, with an open Bible, just look at what I'm doing right now in the present, you would know that I'm God. I'm bringing liberation, I'm bringing justice, I'm bringing love to the people, why? Because you're not and it's all laid out bare and open in your Bibles. If you'd simply look, you'd see that. As we close, what stands out to me is that the heart of Jesus here is on full display because Jesus is confronting these guys who've already made up their mind about Jesus. They're stuck on stupid. They're hell-bent on killing him, and they're ignorant of the very scriptures that they've been entrusted with, and they will not believe, and if I were God at that point, I'd be like, y'all are dead, I'd just smoke them right there on the spot, if it were me. I'd be like, you're a bunch of idiots. Like, what else do you want? But the heart of Jesus here is he's still pleading with them to provide a pathway for them to see him. He's like, would you just look at what I'm doing? Would you just look? God might be saying that to you today. Maybe you've been, you know, in trusting in your religious system of do good, try harder. Maybe you've been, you know, just totally focused on things that Christians have done in the past, like to, to you know, to earn our freedoms. We're, we're a nation that's established on the word of God and we're free. Yeah, and you're just like the Pharisees who were stuck on this day the Feast of Dedication, all celebrating their freedom and what God did in the past and they're totally missing Jesus right now in the present. Jesus is like, would you just look what I'm doing? Galatians 5.13, Paul said this, you my brothers and sisters were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. Paul told Titus, this is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed, that's key, those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Not working for their salvation, working from their salvation. Hey, you're a child of God. You've believed. He's canceled all your sins. He's given you a new creation. He made you a new creation in Christ. And he's giving you the hope of eternal life. And he says, hey, if that's you, you should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. We're gonna close with three questions. And my first question needs some explanation. I just want you to kind of get my mindset in asking this first question. And I'll just set it up this way. I see people today on social media and elsewhere but let's just say social media to where i i think to myself sometimes like do you not have a job like you you how many hours do you spend on these arguments that you're making on social media that at the end of the day don't have anything to do with your relationship with the Lord. They have nothing to do with leading somebody to know the Lord. They have nothing to do with focusing on the goodness of the Lord. You want to spend all your times arguing about these stupid things that really, on the matter meter, they just don't even register, right? And so the first question is, what foolish disputes am I engaging in that are unprofitable? What good works could I replace them with? I'm saying that in light of Titus 3, verses 8 and 9. Second question, are there any areas in my life where I might be hearing my voice and calling it God's voice? Don't just answer that. Take a walk with that. Third question, what are some practical ways that I can exercise caution to hear from God?